This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi Super Bowl Sunday this weekend. Always look forward to that, including a little Super Bowl munchies. So the hot question today, what is your favorite Super Bowl food. Now, coming up later in the show, we're going to get into some Super Bowl snacking. I'll speak to Karen McSherry. She's always awesome. She's got some great Super Bowl recipes for you. I will share my famous chicken wing recipe, the best in the world. What would you say is your favorite Super Bowl food? Would you say chicken wings, pizza, nachos, or would you choose something else? And you can write in your choice. Here's where you vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. That's where you'll find the question. Give me a follow while you're there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. I've just retweeted it, too. Phone me on the buzz line today and tell me what you think. What's your favorite Super Bowl food? 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. And send me an email, too. Mike at cknw.com let's talk about climate change now and the cost of climate change brand new report out this morning from 25 bc-based organizations and academics says the cost of climate change in british columbia is massive when you consider forest fires flooding extreme weather other climate change related emergencies The group has put out a new report raising the alarm about the cost to BC taxpayers from these rising costs to deal with the effects of climate change. They want the fossil fuel companies to pay for it. They are demanding a climate compensation act to require fossil fuel companies to pay at least partially for the costs of climate change Uh, we got a great panel assembled for you on this now first let's go to andrew gage he is a staff lawyer with west coast environmental law part of the groups that uh, put out this report today andrew thanks a lot for coming on thanks for having me okay tell me about the cost of of climate change what what, can you quantify it what is the cost and how much is it well, I mean, I think part of what we were asking the province to do was to do a better job of really exploring that. But we do know that the uh, wildfires in 2017 and, and 2018 uh, cost well over a billion dollars to respond to, and that scientists at UVic say that they were 7 to 11 times larger as a result of climate change. And then the province also put out a report last summer looking forward to, to ex- expected climate costs and disasters uh, in the future and found that by 2050, the, the likelihood of that type of wildfire uh, was significantly increased, and we should expect them every few years. Um, so what about these this, are what about this year, though? What about this year, though? The cli- the forest fires weren't as bad this year. What happened? Which is great. Uh, you know, yeah. climate change isn't a. So how, do, so how do you know it's cl- how do you know it's climate change if uh, if we didn't have many as bad a forest fire year this year? So, so I mean, what what the scientists at UVic did was to to model you know what the weather patterns had been and, and whether there was were likely to have been changed by climate change. Climate. Climate change is not a, you know, things will be hotter every single year. We always have weather where it gets colder some years and warmer other, other years. But the trend uh, is, uh, and, and, uh, is towards more wildfires, hotter uh, summers, uh, you know, more erratic weather. Right, right. And, uh, I mean, the, the wildfire service has, you know, has been saying that the, the every year the, the length of the wildfire on a, uh, season on average you know, it lengthens by another day or two. So, so, therefore, make the fossil fuel companies pay for it. Is that what you're saying? Uh, not all of it. I mean, you know, clearly we're all going to end up paying for this. But right now, taxpayers are paying 100% of the costs. There's no conversation about these companies, Exxon and Chevron, that have made hundreds of billions of dollars of profits and just okay. plan to pass that on to their taxpayers. And in fact, continue well, doing exactly what they've been doing. Don't they pay taxes? They pay taxes in whatever countries they're located around the wor- world, yeah. but they're not based on the harm they're causing. They're based on the profits they've made. Uh, so there's a disconnect between the harm that we're suffering and the profits they're making, and that causes them to make poor business decisions that ultimately will harm us all. Let's go to Stuart Muir. He's the CEO of ResourceWorks, which is a group that represents uh, resource, comp- resource interests in BC. Stuart, thanks for coming on. What do you think about this? Thank you. Well, I think right now we have the province of BC going through a process to analyze what do we need to do to deal with the reality of, of climate change in future. That's part of it. Also, 
over the long term, making sure the emergency response, the recovery, the preparation, mitigation, that all of that is up to date. So that's a very rational thing for the province of BC to be doing. I think their plan is a good one. And now we're talking about it, which is great, too. Um, In terms of the fossil fuel part, I mean, one thing I, I find that this campaign tends to overlook is that fossil fuel companies exist for a reason, which is to supply fuels to citizens so we can go about our business so that uh, people can get to work in school, ambulances go, can go and pick up sick people, we can fly in airplanes, all that kind of thing. That's yeah. what it's about. It's, it's not about these sort of evil foreign corporations somehow uh, trying to destroy the planet. Uh, not at all. In fact, the province of BC has been asked to come into these fossil fuel uh, lawsuits and said, you know what, we're going to collaborate and work with industry to make things better. Okay, Andrew, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, I don't think anyone's saying that, I mean, you know, as Stuart says, these companies have acted uh, to make profits uh, and to provide a product that people are looking for, but it's a product right. that doesn't currently reflect the true cost of itself. So, you know, in the same way we've decided as a society that when tobacco companies were knowingly selling a product that was going to cause impacts, that they should pay for some of the costs. The taxpayers shouldn't be paying for 100% of the health care costs. We need well, to start a conversation about, you know, this industry that has known since the 1960s that their products would cause these types of impacts. And not only did not you know, uh, invest in, in alternatives and start building a society where we were not causing this type of destruction, but actually funded misinformation campaigns and lobbied against action. So you know, the industry has done exactly what you'd expect someone who is making an awful lot of money from not paying for their cost of their products yeah, to do. Yeah, but I think the comparison with tobacco, though, is not really a fair one because like, when it comes to tobacco, I mean, my dad died from smoking from lung cancer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would say, you know, screw the tobacco companies to the wall. Sure, make them, make them pay because the only thing their products do is just basically addict and kill people. But when you talk about oil and gas and fossil fuels, what about, I mean, you're talking about the social costs of climate change. What about the benefits, the social benefits from oil and gas production over the years in creating a, a modern industrial society that we have that has created like the best health care and, and education systems and social safety net we've seen ever in human history, which is largely from the wealth from resource extraction that's created that? Right, and there's—I mean—you got to admit there's social benefits from fossil fuels. Yeah, there are social benefits to asbestos yeah. too, right? But once you know, the social benefits to to uh, chemicals that destroy the ozone layer. But once we realized there was a problem, we started saying, "No, we've got to actually cut back on that. We've got to actually solve this problem." And as long as an industry is making hundreds of billions of dollars of profits and expecting taxpayers to pay the costs, they have no incentive to be part of that solution. Yeah, but what I'm saying to you though is. Y- do you also have to be fair about it? Do you also have to factor in the social benefits that have been accrued from fossil fuels, like, for example, increases in agricultural production around the world that have saved, I don't know how many millions of lives and let people live longer? So yeah, do you, but if so the you balance that off, so you balance that off the benefits, right? I mean, be fair. There, I mean, there are benefits well, I don't from think it we're too. being unfair. All we're saying is that industry is causing a significant portion of these contribu- of these costs, and that if they're not paying for some portion, if it 100% is being paid by taxpayers, we can't afford that in the long run. We need an economy that reflects the true costs of the fossil fuel economy. And if there are still, you know, once we've done that, well, situations where, you know, it makes sense to be using fossil fuels the way we have been, then we'll probably do that. But if there well, are situations where once you factor in the true costs of the fossil fuel economy, it makes more sense to actually be using renewables and alternatives. That's well, what we I'm, should be doing. I guess what I'm saying to you is the true cost. You're only looking at one side of the true cost. I mean, you're not factoring in, I think, the benefits from well, Society from, does from a very industry. good job of factoring in the profits that the fossil fuel companies make. That's why ta- ta- government's taking the subsidies. I'm not talking about the profits of fossil fuel companies. I'm talking about the social benefits from... Yeah, those are also quanti- reflected in our economy. The, what's not reflected in our economy is, is uh, you know, the fact that wildfires are caused by that. You know, we've got a fossil fuel economy that only emphasizes the, the benefits. And now you're saying, when I point out that there are costs, you say, I'm ignoring the benefits. No, I mean, society has benefited from the fossil fuel economy, absolutely. That doesn't mean they should not be paying any of the costs associated with their products. Just as asbestos companies had to, just as, you know, the the companies that that put out products that were perceived to be good at the time, but which had hidden costs, you need to start accounting for those. Stuart Muir, what do you say to all this? You know, it's not a great insight that there are positives and negatives with the use of fossil fuels. And and you look around at what's happening. It it almost sounds here like nothing's happening to improve how we use fossil fuels. But in fact, I see 
uh, evidence like the carb- carbon pricing, carbon tax in BC, which we've had for uh, almost a decade, over a decade now, 12 years, I think. We have got the uh, Paris commitments that the government of Canada is buying into. We've got at the municipal level in every community in BC, they, they all have plans for climate the collectivity of the municipalities, the UBCM, they've done a lot right. of good work to recognize these issues, advanced plans. So the idea that it's somehow being, been ignored until the idea of suing fossil fuel companies comes along, it just doesn't stand up. And I think the other thing is, if I may, is that producing fossil fuels doesn't, uh, although it contributes to the problem, obviously, it's the consumption and use of fossil fuels that creates the emissions. And until we look more seriously at the the consumers who use that and give them alternatives and better ways of using those fuels, we're not going to see progress. Well, well we it's already have, and we have, we already have a, a, a carbon tax in BC too, right? So, I mean, the government has already taken action to try and curb fossil fuel use with a carbon tax. I mean, do you, fa- what about that, Andrew? You, th- you think well, that's The focus of this legislation that we're talking about, we're, we're saying that global fossil fuel companies have caused harm here in BC. So there have, there has to be an accounting from the global industry. The, um, the carbon tax applies to emissions that occur in BC, and it's part of the problem. It's actually way too low in terms of making the reductions that we'd that we'd want BC to to ultimately make. make but it's it's only a very small portion of the global problem. By talking about the responsibility of Chevron and Exxon and their liability in BC courts, you know, we actually send a global message, and we're not just focused on on you know a, a tax that applies only to BC industry. How is it really possible though to make these companies pay? Because I know in, in BC they've talked a great game about making the tobacco companies pay, and that's been snaking through the court system. It's been very, very slow, and I don't know quite... I've asked the, the, the government whether they could comment on why it's been so slow, and they have not responded to that. The fact is it's way slower than most uh, class action lawsuits, but they're in, they're well, in settlement negotiations as we speak. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, this is, it's not that nothing's happening there, and the fact is that um, you know, when industry starts having to answer questions like this and, and looking court, they, they have to disclose that to their shareholders. They have to start talking about the true costs of climate change. Um, you know, Exxon, in terms of the idea of providing alternatives to consumers, Exxon had a patent on a low-emission vehicle in the 1970s that they never produced, they never made available. Uh, you know, so as, as did, them, and similarly, similarly, they had patents on solar technology, they had patents on uh, a number of the technologies that we needed available, but because it was more profitable for them to expand their production, that's what they did. Andrew Gage, Stuart Muir are my guests. Bruce in New Westminster, hi. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I suppose what makes me think that fossil fuel companies would be liable in a lawsuit is that they knew for a long time that climate change was real, and they had a deliberate campaign of misinformation and denial that they mis- <laughs> that they downplayed their own liability there, not only to the average consumer, but also to their own investors. Uh, Andrew, you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I would certainly think that's a big part of what we're talking about, yes. Stewart, and I think true? they did that because, you know, that was the profitable thing to do because they felt they could pass those costs on to taxpayers. Stuart, what do you say to that? Well, I, I would just say that there's a judge in New York State who would disagree with that because where this this lawsuit to try to you know, place this type of blame on fossil fuel companies, um, it, it just hasn't met the tests. Uh, in other jurisdictions, why would we expect that to happen here? So but that, really that's not correct, Stuart. You know, know that it, it is. It is. But what it impels us to do is to to work with each other to recognize the real problems we can solve. The idea that a multinational fossil fuel company should be sued because in Kelowna they need to realign some roads due to wildfire risk or something hypothetical like that is is not a commonsensical uh, type of approach. Let's go to Bill in Richmond, Bill. Bill, you snooze, you lose. Mike in West Van, hi. Yeah. Hi, uh, go ahead. I have a question for uh, Andrew, uh, and that's, or, or uh, I would like to hear his reply, is that basically uh, I think before we move any farther is uh, the onus is on somebody like you to prove that carbon dioxide is a problem. Oh, Currently, okay. there is no empirical evidence that says 
the carbon dioxide. Okay, before we go, before we get, before we go like down that rabbit hole, go I ahead. I actually Andrew. would like to respond to it briefly, okay, though, go ahead, go because ahead. there was, you know, this Chevron was one of the companies that was sued in the United States, and the judge of the day, day in, that, in that case, asked for a climate tutorial, asked the fossil fuel companies to say what they thought the science was, and Chevron, representing the five fossil fuel companies who were sued in that case, pointed to the, the science of the, the Intergovernmental Climate uh, Panel on Climate Change and agreed with all of it. They, there was no dispute from the fossil fuel companies that, that carbon dioxide was uh, the leading cause of, of climate change and that their products were largely responsible. What they contested was whether or not they were, should be liable as a result. But the science was not in dispute because it's accepted by scientists that work for fossil fuel companies. I think the question is, you know, whether we debate the science on it. I mean, the debate's been going on for a long time. But I, th I think the question is, with your idea to make to recover these costs from fossil fuel companies, is that even realistic or, or viable? Uh, because it just seems to me that they can't even get money out of the tobacco companies here in B.C., which is, a, in, in my estimation, a, a slam-dunk case. So if you have a case like this, which I think is a lot more dubious, I think you'd probably just be pouring a lot of good money after bad uh, on a legal on a legal case that would cost taxpayers millions of dollars and you're not going to win it well i mean i guess you know we've got a letter there's a letter that was sent by um law professors from across canada i think 25 yeah. of them or so so all endorsing the idea that the government should be looking at these uh these options uh you know the, the legal community the significant percentage of the legal community thinks this type of lawsuit is viable I mean, are there challenges to doing it? You know, will, will the fossil fuel companies fight aggressively? Of course they will. But at the end of the day, if we don't ha start having this conversation, if we don't start looking at this legislation, yeah. looking at the potential for litigation, then we've got tens of billions of dollars of, of costs, maybe more, the British Columbia communities are going to be facing. And we will be paying 100% of that as taxpayers. Stuart, and I guess the question is, do we really want, can we really afford that? What, what do we have to give up to start, you know, dealing with wildfires yeah. of 2017, 2018 ilks that happen every, like, five years? He's got a minute left, you know, Stuart Muir. The BC Environment Minister, I saw him speak a couple of days, George Heyman, used to be head of the Sierra Club, a bona fide environmental organization. I, I've seen at least two letters he's written to municipalities about this through the fossil fuel companies campaign. And he's a practical environmentalist. And he's the one saying, no, we're not going to do that because that's not a solution for us. We are going to collaborate with industry because that's where the solutions lie. So let's work in the solution space. Reasonable people know this, and that's where we need to be. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, we we know that eighty percent, seventy seventy five percent of British Columbia support the idea that fossil fuel companies should pay some share of these costs. Uh, you know, question about what is that share, but the, this is widely supported. Guys, well, thank you for already, coming. They're already doing yeah. that. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. We're out of time, but I appreciate both of you coming on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Okay, you bet. That's Andrew Gage. He is a lawyer with West Coast Environmental Law. Stuart Muir. He is the CEO of resource works it's a big week in bc politics so there's lots to talk about with our panel in the studio with me shannon waters reporter for bc today shannon thank you for coming in thanks for having me mike also mclean k is here he's the editor-in-chief of the orca bc mclean thank you thank you for having us okay guys let's start with uh the story we've been talking about a lot this week and that is is ride hailing and the sort of I don't know if it's a botched or a bungled rollout, but everybody's suing everybody else. Uh, they said, Shannon, that the reason that this took so many years to finally achieve in British Columbia is because the government said they wanted to get it right. And I just thought, if this is getting it right, I'd hate to see what it would look like if they got it wrong, because everybody's suing each other. You got McCallum's people writing $500 tickets to Uber drivers. Uh, you got the taxi companies saying we're not going to subsidize wheelchair accessible taxis anymore, which I think is despicable. But your thoughts on the way this thing is rolled out this week? Well, and I think the big thing is this is just the introduction to the Metro Vancouver market. Most of the rest of the province doesn't have any ride hailing services as of yet. The Passenger Transportation Board has been looking at applications or accepting applications since September. We're now in January and they've approved, I think, three applications and turned down more than that. Um, but yeah, watching what's been going on in Metro Vancouver this week has been sort of entertaining and mind-boggling. Like you said, there seems to be sort of a new lawsuit every day or a new wrinkle that's rolling out. Now, the transportation minister yesterday came out with a statement saying, we're still working on things. There's there's more that's coming. We're going to make yeah. sure that insurance is easier for the taxi industry. But again, the province's messaging seems to be focusing on 
easing the taxi industry into this as much as possible. And yeah. even that doesn't seem to have been particularly successful. I just find it find it strange that after two and a half years of this government in power, now they're trying to fix the insurance stuff for the taxi companies. This is one of the primary complaints from the taxi companies. Oh, the insurance is cheaper for Uber. Now the government's saying like, Okay, we're going to give you cheaper insurance. Shouldn't they have done that a long time ago, McLean? Like, well, yes. I mean, to me, that's the most remarkable thing about the last few months in ride hailing. Ride hailing is that it it somehow feels rushed, yeah. which is astonishing if you think about it. Because we have a situation like we're trying to figure out taxi insurance after the fact. We're trying to figure out what you do when a city in Metro Vancouver decides it just doesn't want to play along. Somehow. Despite this long run-up, they they seem unprepared and caught off guard, and I, I find that hard to explain. Let's have, have a listen to this. This is a clip of Claire Trevena, the transportation minister, and what I find interesting here is the tone about how the government seems to kind of gone all in a little bit on, on the side of Uber and Lyft and telling people like McCallum, you better get with the program. Here is Claire Trevena. They want ride hail. People want ride hail. We hear, heard that overwhelmingly. We wanted to make sure it was safe. We ensured it was safe. We ensured that uh, it was going to be introduced in a fair way. And we made it very clear that uh, ride hail was coming to BC. BC. No municipality can block it. It is the law that there is ride hailing in BC in areas the Passenger Transportation Board has granted a license. Okay, kind of a uh, message, I think, directed to Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, saying you better get with the program, but McCallum is clearly... Is, is drawing a line in the sand here, and he's not going to play ball with them. It, it, it doesn't sound like it at this point in time, and I can imagine that's frustrating for a lot of people who are excited yeah. about ride hailing. They're... You know, there are people who aren't super happy to have companies like Uber and Lyft operating in the province at this point in time. But overall, I think most people are like, finally, we're getting ride hailing. And now we have a mayor from one of the larger Metro Van municipalities saying, what, nope, not coming here. What do they got to do with this guy, uh, McCallum, McLean, in, in your opinion? Because we're going to get some new developments on this this afternoon, it appears, if the Metro Vancouver mayors approve uh, a region-wide license, operating license for ride hailing. Another thing that's been bungled, they should have had that in place from the very start. But anyway, they're bringing it in this afternoon. What happens if McCallum says, I don't care about your license, it's not going to apply in, in Surrey? I mean, you know, is the fight over? Well, it doesn't appear to be over. The The provincial government strategy appears to be just to convince Surrey and any other mayors that may feel the same way to just play ball. But yeah. we're seeing what happens when they don't. And so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the minister said that it is going to fall upon Uber and Lyft and whoever else to sue Surrey themselves. And so they're kind of uh, allowing it to go through another round in the courts. And they already have an injunction. Uber's already filed to have bylaw officers in Surrey stop handing out $500 tickets to these drivers. Let's uh, switch gears and talk a little ICBC. It was a big week on that file, too. We had a report that came out from the private insurance companies saying, lo and behold, insurance is cheaper in Alberta, where they have private insurance. A lot of pushback on that from the government saying, oh, the numbers are wrong. They've been torqued against us. But I thought it was interesting to see announcements this week from the government as well that we're going to bring in a new fairness commissioner for ICBC. I think the government thinks, realizes that they're vulnerable on this. I want you guys to listen to this. This is... Uh, me talking earlier this week to Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, and I asked him about what exactly would you do to fix ICBC if you were the premier? And he gave me an interesting answer. Have a listen. Okay, so you're not going to give me an answer to that. I'm, I'm asking what you would do, like if you're actually in power. Oh, I think ICBC should be open to competition. That's the whole idea, so that people have a choice. If ICBC can compete in that marketplace, then we might still have ICBC. But this idea that somehow you're going to privatize a company that loses a billion dollars a year, who's going to buy that? Okay, okay. so what he's saying there, guys, is he's not going to privatize ICBC. Doesn't doesn't make any sense. But saying pretty clearly, I think, for the first time, he's got this degree of clarity, I think, that he thinks ICBC should be required to compete against private insurance companies for the basic insurance product here in BC that everyone's legally required to buy. Right now, it's a government monopoly. Does that change... McLean, in your opinion, does that kind of change the, the equation here on this debate? Because I think that's going to be a big issue going forward here in an election. 
Well, I think it does, actually, because you're right. I mean, this does kind of lay down a marker for the first time of a, of a policy direction from the BC Liberals on this. And that it, it seems to me that they and the NDP had a ways to do to catch up to the public, where there does seem to be this growing sense um, that, yes, on an apples-to-apples basis, it does appear, at least, as though a lot of British Columbians pay more for car insurance here. And I think the public has increasingly shifted in that direction. Shannon? I think McLean's right in that, like, monopolies don't tend to be very popular and ICBC seems to have an almost singular ability to make itself very unpopular. But the thing that strikes me, I have colleagues who work in Alberta and who work in Ontario, and those are the markets that are often called up and that BC is compared to because there are private options there. And the impression that I get from my colleagues is people in Alberta and Ontario aren't happy with their car insurance either and are often paying really high premiums. So on the one hand, yes, ICBC, uh, opening ICBC up to competition could, for a lot of people, um, sort of change the game. All of a sudden, they have choice. They have options. But whether it's actually going to fix sort of the issue around insurance, whether that's from a coverage perspective, because that's been an issue with people um, not having the coverage they expected or getting settlements that people feel are way too low, yeah. um, and also the cost. Um, I I'm not a math person, so I'm not great with the numbers. The um, Insurance Bureau of Canada says they've crunched them and it's way cheaper in Alberta and Ontario. The Attorney General says, we don't know how you're arriving at those numbers. Prove it. I think the interesting thing on that is is Shannon kind of hits the nail on the head there and that I I think a lot of people... Don't, aren't great at math in terms of comparison because it is complicated. <laughs> but it was very interesting yesterday when uh, the Attorney General said that the ICBC has a problem in that a lot of British Columbians don't trust it. Don't trust, yeah. And that, I mean, whether the numbers are true or not is a, a, sort of a reflection of the fact that I think people are starting to look at ICBC differently. Okay, real quickly, guys, before we take a break, and the Green Party leadership, now we already have Sonia first to now, the Green Party MLA has announced that she will seek uh, the leadership of the party, which kind of the worst kept secret in BC politics, as Andrew Weaver put it. So everybody knew she was going to go for it. The other interesting development today is that uh, Yonina Campbell, who is a former New West uh, school trustee and currently the deputy leader of the party, even though she's not elected, she's not an MLA, widely anticipated that she would seek the job and might get a lot of support. And she announces this morning she won't run for the job. Does this is this make uh, Sonia Furstenau pretty much a lock here to become the leader of this party, Shannon? Well, I think she was certainly the front runner at that point in time. She's she has a seat in the legislature and is running for the leadership of the party. Um, she's also that was the first one to declare, so you know, um, first one out of the gate. Um, but I don't know that it's going to look great for the party if there's only one person who wants yeah. to compete for the leadership. Now, there's still time. They have until mid-April to actually for anyone who's interested to get their ducks in a row and get in the race. But so far doesn't seem like a lot of people are really keen on getting in there okay real quick I think it, it would be good for the party to at least have somebody from the lower mainland. Uh, the party yeah. uses a very simple one-member, one-ballot system for leadership. And so uh, someone who was there campaigning, would, if, even if they can't beat Sonia or be competitive, I think they'd do good okay. in terms of signing up members. Guys, thanks for coming in. The time, the time flies when you're here. I appreciate it. That is Shannon Waters from BC Today, McLean Kay from the Orca BC. Let's talk about teacher contract talks now. Teachers have been without a contract in our province for around a year. The good news is that the union is saying they're still committed to negotiation. They want a negotiated settlement. There is a mediator involved in there. Uh, they're hoping to get back to the bargaining table here in February, but as usual, two sides far apart and there was also that memo that keith baldry got a hold of at global news outlining potential strike action is that where we're heading here are we going back to the barricades back to a teacher strike let's check in now with patty Backus. she is the education columnist at the georgia strait she is of course the former chair of the vancouver school board patty thanks for coming on thanks for having me on mike okay where are we at right now in uh, talks well, there's actually 300 teacher uh, representatives gathered in Richmond today and tomorrow um, as part of their regularly scheduled representative assemblies. They have three of those a year between their AGMs to uh, deal with different emergent issues and policy decisions. Um, on that agenda, which is not unexpected, is, is I believe the memorandum from BCTF President Terry Mooring that outlines a sort of potential four-step 
response if they're not successful at the bargaining table. And in fact, they're already in stage one, which is kind of a communications type campaign of getting the word out about what they're asking for and, uh, you know, uh, advocating for more education funding. Um, They will be looking at uh, the next three stages, which would, of course, require a strike vote before they proceed. There won't be a strike vote while they're still in bargaining. They're still working with the mediator, David Schaub, who's um, they've been on a bit, a bit of a break since December, but I know the BCTF uh, is hoping to get some dates set for February so they can continue bargaining through the mediator. Um, if that doesn't get anywhere, they do need to have a contingency plan. So that's what that leaked memo was about, as far as I understand. It was a fairly routine thing you would do in a, a prolonged bargaining cycle is start planning for, okay, guys, what are we going to do? <laughs> and what are we going to ask our membership uh, to support us on if if we fail to get anywhere at the table? I think they're still committed to trying to hammer something out and still optimistic that with this government that there's a chance to do that. Right, and that those uh, the strike action that was potentially outlined there in that memo included rotating strikes to start with, 20% of schools shut down on any given day, and then if that doesn't produce a deal, then you go to a, a full-scale strike. But the union saying, like, well, hang on, don't get too far ahead of yourself here because you got to have a strike vote, and there's a lot of dominoes have to fall before we get to a strike. Still, oh, Patty. absolutely. There's still a stage two in there. You you talked about stage three, which is the rotating strike and stage, yeah. stage four. Now, again, none of this has been approved stage, yet. Stage, so two, is, stage two is what? The strike vote? Well, a strike vote and some, some job action type activities. So okay. withdrawal. And, and I think that's where you'd really see the pressure because that's a kind of activities like preparing report cards, attending formal parent-teacher conferences, uh, voluntarily organizing events that fall outside of school hours. A key one right now would be refusing to fill in for absent teachers, cover other classes, unless they're actually a a hired teacher on call. So right now I know with the teacher shortage, they're pulling teachers who are, say, on their prep time or supposed to be a resource teacher to cover for absent uh, teachers who they can't find a sub for. They're going to say no to that in Stage 2, or that's what's proposed. So it would be a number of, of actions that would be designed to put pressure on management and the employer and make it very difficult for them, including things like noon hour supervision. And we've seen this in previous disputes where you have to send out people from the head office and the principals have to go in and do that work. So it really makes life kind of miserable for management and administration, but it doesn't really affect students and their parents. So that stage two I see is a problem. And this time they're being very clear. They're not talking about withdrawing from extracurricular after school voluntary activities. If teachers want to coach and do things, they're they would be free to continue to do that. So this is, I think, a pretty clever step that they're considering where it would be uh, the public wouldn't be upset because it really wouldn't affect them. It wouldn't affect the kids, but it would sure make life difficult in the school districts, which would in turn be putting pressure back to government and the BC Public School Employers Association to get something resolved. Okay, the two sides are still pretty far apart, though. We're not at a strike action yet, but it still looks a little gloomy to me when you take a look at how far apart the two sides are and how entrenched they are appear to be let me ask you about this i'm going to play some audio here that i've been promoting on twitter in a second and what you're going to hear here is john horgan before he was premier this is back when he was the opposition leader and he appeared at a rally in 2014 of striking teachers and it i just i just setting it up because it's it's quite interesting what he had to say but i think it the reason it's relevant patty is that if you take a look at the bargaining positions of the two sides right now. One of the things that the government is proposing is essentially larger class sizes or the ability to enlarge class sizes, right? And the teachers mm-hmm. are saying, hang on a minute, this is what we fought 10 years for against the previous Liberal government all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And we won, the teachers won at the highest court in the country when the, after the Liberals stripped, out contract, uh, stripped their contract and took out class size limits, right? And And... At that time, they're saying, why should we go back on what we won at the Supreme Court? Mm-hmm. Is that is that an effective, uh, effective uh, summation of where we're at? On well, that? and I think it's important to remember that uh, the former government was found to twice by the courts to have been bargaining in bad faith with the BCTF. 
So when people say, oh, the BCTF can never get a deal with government, uh, let's hang on a minute here and think about what really happened, that we had a government that was not bargaining in good faith um, with them. So it's really hard to, to work with that. They also, yes, they, they fought uh, for the right to be able to bargain class size and composition, which was what the government tried to strip away. And they right. won that right back through the course that they, they are able to bargain it. So they are starting with the language that's there from the agreements that preceded the Liberals stripping their contracts. So some of it's very old, sort of outdated language from 2002, but they're not in a mood to be giving that up, particularly when they're being told they have to work within a, a fairly, what I would call, okay. miserly public sector mandate of 2-2-2, two, two and two, which they're not disputing that that's the mandate, yeah, but two, they're trying two, to work within that. 2-2-2 two, two and two would be a 2% raise in each year of a three-year deal, which is kind of the pattern uh, raise that is the government seeking here with uh, with uh, public sector unions. But let me yes. let me play this audio now because this is John Horrigan speaking at a teachers rally in 2014. Listen carefully to what he says here, and 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 what you're going to hear here is what a lot of teachers were thrilled to hear. And when the NDP got into power, I think a lot of teachers are rightly thinking like, oh man, this is payback time now because we got a friendly government here who's going to take care of us. And it's and, and now they kind of a lot of teachers feel like that's not happening. So here is John Horgan talking to teachers in 2014. The rights that were hard fought and earned in the courts by teachers want to be taken away by Christy Clark on the courthouse steps. She believes the only rights you deserve are those that she gives you. I say that's wrong. As Canadians, we all have rights. As BC Teacher Federation members, you have rights that were hard fought for. Do not give them up. To Mr. Fassbender, I say, to Mr. Fassbender, I say, you failed at negotiation. You don't understand mediation. You couldn't spell arbitration, so how about resignation? The values in this court today, the values in this square today are shared by people across this province. We've just come back from Kamloops where 800 teachers would have been here were they not defending the rights of citizens in that town, walking picket lines, demonstrating and getting support from parents, businesses and people right across the board. The Premier's on the wrong track. It's time to get with reality, support teachers, support education and let's get our kids back to school. Keep it up. All right, John Horgan. John Horgan, before he was premier, talking to teachers. Teachers are loving hearing that. And what you heard him say there at the end, don't give up. We've got your back. Brothers and sisters, do not give up on the, what you want at the Supreme Court of Canada. Calling for the resignation of the education minister there at the time, Peter Fassbender. Like, Patty, when you listen to that, what, what, what goes through your mind now, given the state of negotiations right now? Well, that's a beautiful clip. Well done. Um, I Well, I heard those speeches. I heard John Horgan speak many times when the NDP was in opposition. I heard Rob Fleming. He would show up any time parents were rallying for anything in Vancouver. He'd be on the ferry so quick or, or the helijet you couldn't believe it. And he'd be over here uh, winding up the crowd and talking about how terrible the Liberals were. And, you know, what you hear from teachers is they're feeling really betrayed. I mean, not only did they have to fight this long, long, expensive court battle where many were telling them to just give it up, wave the flag, stop being so stubborn, just just play along. They hung in there and they ultimately won. So when people say, oh, the BCTF, just, you know, just give up. Well, if they'd taken that advice, they wouldn't have had that massive win that has resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars going back into the system and four more teachers being hired. Um, they're also at a time there's actually a shortage of teachers. Like they, they, they're, And they're feeling yeah. the stress. I hear from teachers all the time how it's affecting them when there is not okay. enough uh, substitutes. So okay. they've got a strong position and they've got a premium who Garrett, you know, was going to be their friend, and they're not feeling that he's really standing behind them anymore. Okay, last question for you, Patty. Despite all that, and after listening to that clip, you can understand why some teachers are, are feeling let down. The government, though, is saying that they've got a mandate that other public sector unions have, have accepted. All these other unions have taken the 2% raise. We want the teachers to take the same thing. They're not going to budge off their mandate. They're not going to put more money in the education budget to pay for teachers in a big raise. Does, is that a formula for a strike? 
No, it's not. And the BCTF has acknowledged that they were, are working within that mandate. They get that. They're not happy about it. Their members aren't happy about it. But they're, you know, I talked to Terry Maureen, the president. Terry is an incredibly pragmatic and reasonable person to deal with. She understands the political context. Um, they know there is a public sector mandate that is set at 2-2-2, two, two, and two, and that's what most other public sector unions have agreed to. They're asking for changes to their salary grid and some st- salary restructuring, which I understand happened with some of the other public public sector unions. They do need to improve. So that's the grid. It's where you have your starting wages and they're looking like start a little higher on the existing grid, uh, bring in some other money. Even the Liberals, Christy Clark in 2014, I remember if you recall near the end of bargaining in the fall of 2014, suddenly appeared with another, oh, it was over $100 million it was available uh, to to bring Mm -hmm. in some special funds to support uh, uh, class size and composition issues and other other problems that that they were having in the districts. I think it's doable. It's going to take a movement. They've left the same bargaining agent in place, which I think is problematic. The culture there is not great at BCPC, or it certainly wasn't when I was there um, as, a, as a school board uh, representative. But okay. I think it's resolvable. I don't think they're actually that far apart, but they need okay. to move off these uh, tight trying to take away the class composition language that uh, right. is a real sticking point. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Anytime. Take care. I appreciate it. Patty Backus, she's the education columnist of the Georgia Strait. No, I think that uh, ICBC was driven into a ditch by the previous government over, over a period of about a decade. They took a money-making corporation that provided low rates to British Columbians. They siphoned money out of it. They ignored very practical recommendations for reform to make sure that it continued to make money and provide low rates. And we ended up in the mess we're in of a corporation losing a billion dollars. So it uh, needed and continues to need significant reforms, which we're engaged in. Okay, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. That was the voice of David Eby, the Attorney General there, talking about ICBC and the famous dumpster fire that's still burning over there, as he famously put it, losing a billion bucks a year. And what you heard him uh, say there, and I, I think you should get used to that refrain, because I think you're going to hear it more uh, from him and the NDP, that it's all the Liberals' fault, okay, that they drove ICBC into a ditch, and the problems that they got is because the liberals mismanaged ICBC when they were in power. You're going to hear that a lot, I think, from the NDP as we get closer to another election. And I think the reason why is I think the New Democrats realize that they're vulnerable here on this file and the liberals are trying to take advantage. So you're going to hear the NDP try to blame the liberals a lot for the problems going over there. One of the things that is a little hint here about the, the political sensitivities on this thing has been uh, what we've seen this week. Earlier this week, we saw a report uh, from the private insurance companies that said that, lo and behold, people in Alberta have got cheaper insurance rates than BC. Of course, they got private insurance next door in Alberta. The government aggressively pushing back on that, saying the numbers are torqued. It's not true. But then you saw the very next day, David Eby do a news conference with Nicholas Jimenez, who is the president of ICBC, and they rolled out some new programs. So one of the things they announced was a new fairness commissioner. So if you think you've been jerked around by ICBC or you haven't been treated fairly, you can go to this independent commissioner and he'll listen to your to your complaining and, and maybe do something to help you. So they announced that. I'm not sure that's going to help the government out a whole lot. The other thing that really jumped out at me was uh, EB announcing that ICBC will start to offer pre-litigation cash to people hurt in a car a car accident or car crash. So the way it works right now is if ICBC offers you money and you take the money, you would not be you would not have to give up your right to sue. So EB is saying that you could still sue ICBC for even more money. Okay, so right now, if you took the money up front, you would surrender your right to sue. So that's interesting, but here's the catch there. The government's saying that if you do that, they'll only let you keep that pre-litigation cash if you don't hire a lawyer. So basically, it's like, don't hire a lawyer, just take the money. Maybe you can hire a lawyer later and sue us. But if you don't hire a lawyer, you can keep this cash and still sue me later. But don't hire a lawyer. I just wonder how people think what think people think about that. Because I think anytime you hear somebody say, just take the money, don't worry about hiring a lawyer, 
Maybe that should set off alarm bells for people. We'll see. But uh, this ICBC stuff, I'll tell you, it's very politically dynamic right now, and I think it's going to be a big issue going forward. Let's talk to Michael Mulligan about it. He is a lawyer uh, based in Victoria. He is with the law firm Mulligan Tam Pearson in Lawyer in, in Victoria, and I'm very pleased you could come on. Hi, Michael. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. One of the things that EB said this week was the reason they wanted to bring in a, this new fairness commissioner is because people don't trust ICBC. Do you think that's true? People don't trust ICBC? I think it is, and in many cases with good reason. Uh, I think a, a better approach than a, fair, a duplicate fairness commissioner, and let's bear in mind, of course, uh, the fairness commissioner proposed would have no actual authority to make decisions. They would be the equivalent of a, uh, a second ombudsperson working at um, ICBC. It strikes me we already have an ombudsperson for the province. Yeah. But uh, a better a better approach to it rather than creating an ombudsperson who would review complaints of unfairness uh, would be for ICBC to take a fundamentally different approach when claims are made against them. Uh, and by that I mean this. The the approach currently taken with great frequency is to try to settle any particular claim for as little money as possible. It's sort of like the trying to sell a used car for as much as you could get approach to everyone who comes to make it clean. Now, that might be an appropriate approach if you're some private insurance company trying to extract as much money as possible for your shareholders. But that may not be an ideal approach for a public insurance company like ICBC. Uh, furthermore, it produces often years of litigation, and often that litigation would have been entirely unnecessary if ICBC took a fundamentally different approach. Uh, and this is how, in my judgment, they should approach claims. They should, first of all, determine, is the claim legitimate? If somebody's making a fraudulent claim or it's uh, exaggerated, plainly those need to be resisted strenuously and nobody would take issue with that. But happily, that's not how most people conduct their affairs. And so where there is a claim made which is not uh, categorized as fraudulent, the approach ICBC should take is not what they currently do, which is try to make some lowball offer, hoping that somebody either will be desperate and take the money or won't get legal advice and know that the uh, offer is less than what would be awarded if the matter were to go to court. In my judgment, a better approach would be, and this isn't rocket science because you can look at previous decisions, look at a claim, look at what have previous cases of this kind been awarded in court, right? And you can look at that. You can look at previous decisions and, with some accuracy, sort that out. Yeah. And offer people that amount of money, not some lowball amount hoping they would take it, but offer them the amount they would get if they were to proceed to court, the fair amount of their claim. If they did so, there would be no incentive to litigate it. Why would somebody want to waste time and money proceeding to court when you're being offered what you would expect to receive then anyways. Uh, and our system is set up to deal with that. Where there's an offer right. made to somebody and you go to court, you don't get more than that. You get costs awarded against you. So the whole system is set up already to encourage that. Currently, oh. that's not the case, right? right? If you look at previous, if you look at decisions, which are all public, you can see that frequently the amount uh, that people are awarded is much more than what ICBC offered them. Yeah, we're talking about ICBC and some of the changes announced this week by the BC government. Attorney General David Eby says people do not trust ICBC, so the government bringing in a fairness commissioner uh, to help people if they've got a complaint against ICBC. I'm not sure that's going to solve the problem that they got. Do you trust ICBC? Call me on that, 604 Two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number. Star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell. Paul and Burnaby. Hi. Hey, uh, Mike. Eighty percent of the country is on a no fault system, and you know that's why they. You know when they compare, I just can't understand ICBC why they don't just make this very clear. The reason we have higher insurance costs is that we do not have a no fault system. And, and therefore, you know, the court costs uh, are, are really, really high. You know, my sister had a head-on collision. She's a lawyer in Ontario, 
And I said, oh, well, you, you know, you claim whiplash. He goes, no, there's no whiplash claim in Ontario. It's no fault. And then, and then of course, they blamed her. Her insurance company blamed her for part of the accident. And she says, well, I'm going to switch. They hiked her thing about 30%. She switched insurance mm-hmm. companies. And they, and they said, well, you, you haven't done business with us, so it's 30% more as well. Okay. I mean, right, Mike? No fault. That's the key to the whole thing. No fault. Okay, thank you for the call. Well... Uh, Michael, is is that true from your perspective? Most of the most of the rest of the country's no fault insurance. Yeah, some certainly some provinces are. The reason that's failed to get traction when it was previously proposed by the NDP yeah. is broadly speaking, people don't like the idea that some dangerous, maybe drunken driver could smash into you and injure you, and they would receive the same compensation you would. Broadly speaking, people like the idea that if somebody is responsible for something, they should be responsible for something. And while it certainly saves some time, if you don't care who caused the accident, um, like, for example, this caller, it sounds like the uh, sister may have been responsible for the accident. That's what he was implying. Um, if you don't care about holding people responsible for what they do, uh, that will certainly save some time and money, uh, but at some cost in terms of yeah. perhaps fairness. I, I remember covering the NDP government of the 90s when they tried to bring in a no-fault insurance system and the the disabled community largely forced them to back down there were people who had been injured in car accidents they were they had very compelling stories they fought back and the government just they just folded their hand and just backed off on it brad and langley hi hi um when it comes to like our rates and our coverage i trust icbc because i've seen people in alberta and other provinces have one at fault accident and their rates skyrocket way beyond what we're paying or even be declined so i like our system being the way it is here but as far as when you get in an accident i've had two minor accidents and it's drawn out it's lengthy and they do play hardball and they they talk down so i don't really trust the way that they try to compensate and your guest that you have there who said they should come out with an offer that's similar to court um what courts have awarded in the past i think is an awesome idea because that would allow people to get back on their feet with a fair settlement and it would save them time and it would save all that court costs so i think that's a great idea okay brad thank you for the call well michael the government is trying to to fight against the lawyers and trying to cut them out of out of the uh the equation here they say there's too much money being spent on legal fees but but i wonder like like i said before the break like if, if nicholas jimenez was right here right now the president of icbc he would probably say oh we don't law lowball off people uh, with our offers if we make a financial offer to people it's a fair offer oh well here's the way you can uh, check that if you doubt what i say about uh, them making offers less than what's awarded in court it's a free site you can go to canley.org all uh, court judgments are published there you can go to British Columbia, search for something like ICBC, and read them. And you will see, case after case, uh, where the court has awarded more than what ICBC has offered, and that's clear, uh, because costs are then awarded uh, against ICBC as the defendant. So you need not take my word for it, nor need you take the word from somebody who's clearly got some interest in it, like the president of ICBC. Simply go and read okay. the decisions. Uh, it's clear. Okay. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll-free in your cell. Hi, James. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. The reason I don't trust ICBC is because it's run by the NDP. Any government that has control of a monopoly over an industry will always find a way to mess it up. If they want to get out of the, out of the red... They need to close all these ridiculously stupid claim centers that they have, liquidate the asset in the land, reduce their staff by half, cut the uh, the commission rates to their outside reps, and then maybe they'll have a shot. But they got to prove that they're willing to, to bite the bullet themselves before they consistently ask the people. Okay, thanks for the call. Okay, Michael, thank you for the call. Well... The Liberals had an opportunity to privatize auto insurance or, or to drastically reform ICBC when they were in power for 16 years, and they didn't do it either. But, Michael, what are your thoughts on the way the government's managing ICBC? Uh, well, first of all, the, the NDP saying, look, the previous government took money out of ICBC uh, is true. Uh, yes. ICBC has a fund of money to pay claims. The last government very clearly took all sorts of money out of that pot to balance the budget. So that's a true complaint. Yeah, $1.2 uh, $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. billion. They took $1.2 right. but even if you put that 
$1.2 billion back in, wouldn't ICBC still be like an economic basket case? Well, the, the dumpster fire might be a little less hot, but uh, you're <laughs> quite right. Things need to be improved. Another thing has to be uh, borne in mind when you compare other provinces' uh, rates to uh, British Columbia is that while the current government isn't taking money out of that kitty that was supposed to pay claims, we do continue to have ICBC perform functions which would otherwise be government functions in other provinces. Like a private insurance company in Ontario doesn't issue driver's licenses and pay for police roadblocks and deal with license plates and various things. So okay. that's we've effectively if you take money whether you take money out or have them perform government functions okay. for free, uh, it has the same effect on rates. Michael, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. You bet, I appreciate it. That's Michael Mulligan. He is a lawyer based in Victoria with the law firm Mulligan Tam Pearson. Man is a true hero. I think this is a slam dunk. Terry Fox should be on the $5 bill. My next guest agrees with me. I know big time on that one, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Hi, Brad. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. I know you're a big backer of Terry on the $5 bill. He was born, he wasn't born in Poco, but he moved to Poco when he was a kid, right? That's right. Uh, I think everyone considers Port Coquitlam to be Terry Fox's hometown because this is the the place where he grew up and and went to school and uh, the, the Fox family uh, has a long history in Port Coquitlam, and I mean, we couldn't be more proud to be the the hometown of Terry Fox. It's something that's very special uh, to Port Coquitlam, and everyone in our community takes such immense pride in being Terry's hometown. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he was Terry Fox was born in in Winnipeg, and then moved to Port Coquitlam when he when he was a kid. So I actually think that makes him an even stronger candidate for the $5 bill because, you know, Winnipeg, Manitoba can take a little a little pride there too, I think. So I think that this is an easy decision, and I sure hope that he ends up on the $5 bill. And I know you're a big... Tell me what you're doing to try and make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So I've written a letter to the Bank of Canada uh, urging them to to put Terry on the, the $5 bill. And, you know, I think the reasons are obvious to everyone. I mean, Terry is just an inspiration, not only to people in Port Coquitlam and British Columbia and Canada, but around the world. I mean, there are Terry Fox runs that happen all over the world, and people know his story and know what he did, and it's just such a tremendous role model for us as Canadians, and I think really embodies what we believe in as Canadians. I mean... This is a, a guy who was, you know, really an ordinary a guy and uh, from an ordinary family in kind of a, an ordinary town like Port Coquitlam. But uh, through his determination and, and, and everything that he stood for, uh, he did extraordinary things and has left such yeah. an amazing legacy. And so um, I, I've, I've articulated that as best as I can to the Bank of Canada and why I think uh, he's such an, an obvious choice that every Canadian, no matter where they live, can take pride in. Uh, and I'm urging people to submit uh, their nomination of Terry to the Bank of Canada. They're, they're right now have an open call for nominations, so you can go on their website. You can fill out a form. It takes maybe two minutes, uh, and you can add, add your voice to having Terry Fox be on the $5 bill. And so I encourage yeah. everyone who's listening uh, to do that, and, and let's send a really clear message that that no one can mistake uh, yeah. that Terry Fox belongs on the five dollar bill. I love it. I'm with you 100 percent on it. Bankofcanada.ca is the website there, and the nominations accepted until March 11th. So there's still plenty of time for people to go on that website and add your voice to put Terry Fox on on the five dollar bill. Um, I remember. I'm old enough to remember the the Marathon of Hope and. Uh, when he died, it was so sad. I remember people uh, that I knew at my high school crying. I mean, you're a younger guy, Brad. I know you probably yeah. were a little kid when he ran across Canada. Or yeah, were you even so, born? Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I was born in, in 1985, but I, yeah. I can tell okay. you that as a, <laughs> yeah. as, a young, as a young guy growing up in Port Coquitlam, um, you know, and, and hearing the stories of Terry, and probably my first memory of it would be, you know, like in grade five in elementary school when uh, we do the Terry Fox run. And, you know, members of the Fox family have been so good about 
continuing to uh, go out to schools and community events and speak to people about uh, Terry and his legacy. And and so, you know, even though I, I was too young to... Um, to you know, to to witness the marathon of hope, um, still have been inspired by his message and right. really connected to it. Um, you know, through the Cherry Fox Run, which continues through our schools and in our community and, and in Port Coquitlam, we have the the hometown run, which is such an amazing event every year. And so, you know, again, it, it's you have to be a pretty spectacular individual to you know, to be able to continue to inspire. I mean, you know, right. long after you're gone, uh, you, your message still resonates and you're still yeah. inspiring young people today. I mean, I when I have the, the tremendous honor, and I think it's probably one of the greatest honors I have is being mayor of Port Coquitlam, to, to speak at the hometown Cherry Fox run and, and to see the number of young people and, and, and kids, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm talking about young kids who... Uh, who even though they're you know born long after all this happened, they they connect with Terry and his story, and they're yeah. inspired, and then they take action, and they're raising money for cancer research. And I mean, I don't think it gets any better than that. So uh, I, I just think that this is really the definition of a no-brainer. I I totally agree with you, Brad. Well said there, and I think that you're right about that. He continues to inspire, and one of the things that I'm super impressed with as well is just how the Terry Fox runs have remained kind of so pure to the to the spirit uh, of Terry the Terry Fox Foundation I think does an awesome job because I know they've they've been under lots of pressure to add big flash, flashy corporate sponsorships and stuff and you know they've just kept it real pure I think and and that's a reflection of what Terry was like himself. I mean, I think maybe the reason that he connects with so people, he, he kind of wore his heart in his sleeve, you know, when you looked at the guy's face and you could just looked into his eyes and just saw what he was doing. And maybe that's why he continues to resonate so many years later. So I think it's a great idea to put him on the $5 bill. And how is the Bank of Canada going to do this now? So it's not like a, it's not like a voting thing, right? Like it's not like the most, the most names, the, the most votes they get is the person who gets on. They just, they select people and then drop make it a short list. Is that how it's going to work? Or? Yeah. So my understanding yeah. is that right now they're they're obviously taking submissions from people, uh, and and then it says that they're going to be uh, shortlisting, and they have an advisory council that's going to do some shortlisting. and And it's interesting because if you look at their criteria and on on the website, it does say that their shortlisting is going to be informed by public opinion. Oh, good. Public okay, opinion good. and historical research. So the public has a really important part to play here, and that's why, you know, we're championing this so hard in, in the city of Port Coquitlam and really trying to get the message out because it it, it does appear that the public's going to have a big uh, part to play here in terms of who gets selected. So uh, the shortlist uh, will then go to the Minister of Finance, who will be okay. making the ultimate decision. Okay, cool. Uh, thank you for that, Brad. Good job. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Okay, you guys. Brad West. He's the mayor of Port Coquitlam. So, you're ready to adapt to a ketogenic diet to lose weight and improve your health. You've come to the right place. I lost 26 pounds, and I have eaten bread every single day. Demand for vegan food is driving restaurant chains to adopt more meat and dairy-free options. I've heard some people were surprised to learn that I've been living Atkins for years. Diets can help us lose weight, look better, and if we're lucky, feel better. But can they help us work better? And how many of us even think about how what we put in our bodies impacts our job performance? It's really a mixed bag. We see lots of people who are really concerned and they're making their lunch the night before and they're very thoughtful about it. But there's an equally large group of people who are just really busy. Sometimes they actually don't know, like they don't know and understand what would be a good choice to make, so they just kind of give up and grab things. Heidi Bates is a registered dietitian at the University of Alberta and says in her experience, at least 50% of us give no thought and make no connection between what we eat and how we perform. The obvious exception is professional athletes. Sam Gagne spoils the shutout bid. My diet's evolved a lot uh, over the years, but um, you start to learn what works for you. And, you know, I've read a lot on it. And, you know, the literature changes, I feel like, uh, since I, in the last 10 years or so, since I've been playing. You just try and pick up little things everywhere you go and try to figure out what works for you particularly. Sam Gagne has spent the better part of 14 seasons in the NHL, with stops in Arizona, Philadelphia, Columbus, Vancouver, and Edmonton. His job, like most of ours, requires him to be alert at 
all times. And for him, that means paying close attention to both what and when he eats. For myself, I always find that if I can get as many carbs as I can post-game, I tend to, to respond a lot better. During the day, I'll, I'll you know limit carbs a little bit more, and then around my training, you add some more into it. And not only are you uh, you know expending a lot of energy playing the game, but there's you know the, the stress factor of uh, you know you're thinking about it all day, all that kind of stuff, and you got to try and get as many nutrients as you can uh, post-game to, to make sure you're recovered for the next day. That may seem a little detailed for what you might assume are your daily requirements to both remain healthy and perform well at your job. So while the very granular diet plan of a professional athlete may not be completely relatable, some things are. For an office worker um, who's a bit more sedentary, you want to avoid that 2 o'clock slump where you're, you're kind of lethargic. For Chef Lisa Lindquist, that 2 o'clock slump is something that can easily be avoided with just a little forethought. So you want something balanced. So something like leftovers from your uh, dinner from the night before is a really easy one because it requires almost no effort. So a good example of that would be a chicken stir fry where you get your uh, protein and your veggies and maybe a bit of rice or something as well so you get a nice balanced meal. Don't work in an office. No set hours. No problem. So a construction worker, the challenge with them is that they might not have access to a microwave to be able to use the leftovers. So, but using a thermos, you can bring that and bring a big thermos full of hot chili, and then you get a lot of protein there as well. And then packing snacks throughout the day, healthy um, snacks like you can bring beef jerky and some grapes or something for an afternoon snack. We know it works. Eat better, feel better, work better. Sounds simple, right? What did you pack for lunch today? Uh, I didn't pack lunch today. I ordered in. Uh, today I did not pack lunch, but I did go out for lunch. What'd you get? Wendy's. And how does that make you feel? Good. It was a chicken burger. It was pretty good. Nothing. <laughs> and so what did you have for lunch today? Or did uh, you? granola bar. <laughs> if you're feeling sluggish in the afternoon, does that dawn on you? Like, oh, okay, I know why. Oh, hugely. I know if I haven't had lunch yet, I can start feeling myself making more rash snap decisions. Uh, or if it's late and then suddenly I'm a little more tired come three or four o'clock, then, uh, you know, I'm, I can definitely figure out why. Do you have any times during the day when you might feel better or worse? Late afternoons is definitely worse. Sometimes I get tired. Probably better in the morning and then a little bit more sluggish after two o'clock. Do you ever think about how what you're eating impacts your job performance? Probably sometimes. Really? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever make the connection between like that and how you're doing at work, how you're feeling, how you're performing? I should. I've never really thought about that, and I will ponder that probably now forever. So we know we should, and we know it works. Why not take the next step? Plan tomorrow's meals today. Cater them to your shift and the physical or mental requirements of your job. And thank us later when your boss compliments you on a job well done.